welcome you to Grace Bible Church. And on Sunday mornings, our worship service, we are going through the book of 1 Timothy. We relatively started it just a little bit ago, and we're working our way through it. I trust it's already a blessing for you. It certainly has been for me. Uh, I want to just say that uh, I want to just talk about the word shipwreck for a moment. And I'm not talking about the time that my cousin hit me in the head with the paddle. Okay, I'm not talking about that. But it's amazing. I'm just trying to think of a good example, look up an example of shipwreck, and it just doesn't get any better than the Apostle Paul. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul <laughs> writes about shipwreck, which appears to be almost the least of his problems. But he says, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. And either in addition to that or one of those times, one of the last ones, the Apostle Paul was on a ship, and we see in the book of Acts chapter 27, verse 41, talks about one of those shipwrecks at least, but striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves, and they were forced to all go out and, and swim to shore, um, and there were some prisoners that were aboard, and Paul was one of them, and yet the Lord used him in a leadership role there. Well, what I'm going to talk about this morning is a more serious type of shipwreck, not a literal one, but a spiritual shipwreck. And in this book, Timothy is the pastor at the time there at Ephesus, and Paul is writing to him instruction. And it first has to do with false teachers who are causing a problem. As he works his way through it, he gives advice to Timothy how not to have his faith be shipwrecked, which these false teachers obviously did. And so that is what we're going to be talking about this morning. So I've entitled it Prevention Against Spiritual Shipwreck. Now, if we're looking at it, I do want to go back a little bit and look uh, at fighting the good fight. That's what we ended up with last week. So we'll even go back into verse 18 a little bit to look at that. But I'm looking at it to make a connection. When Paul tells Timothy to fight the good fight, what did he mean? Well, he meant several things. He meant, one, keep out false teaching. Number two, preach the correct biblical doctrine of the gospel and doctrine. Three, Understand the Bible and even the place of the law. The law is not bad, but you must understand the law in the light of grace, which is faith alone in Christ alone. And he makes that very, very strongly. He also talks about that God is able to save any of us, including himself, who was the foremost of sinners. But he put all of that aside that he might gain Christ. And this is what Timothy is to continue to do, and he has continued to fight the good fight. But now we're going to see he adds to it how to 
how to maintain that good fight by keeping faith and having a good conscience. And then he gives an example of two men who have not done that. Hymenaeus and Alexander. But with that, let's read the scriptures again. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Let's read verse 18, though we're not going to spend a lot of time in it. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 18, and we'll go and read to verse 20. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. And by the way, I have taken this phrase and applied it to what I think the theme of 1 Timothy is. There's a lot of things in 1 Timothy, but I think ultimately it's fighting the good fight in the church. And then in verse 19, it begins with a participle, meaning it's connected. Fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, would you, by the Holy Spirit, give us understanding of the Scriptures? And then, Father, by the Holy Spirit, would you give us understanding how it applies to us this day at Grace Bible Church and for us individually? And by the Holy Spirit, would you enable us to have an understanding of correct doctrine, but also of correct application and the power to preach the gospel And Lord, we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to just begin then a little bit in verse 18. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time in that. We did talk about it, but I do want to make a connection. So here, Timothy was entrusted with a ministry. And it talked about in accordance with prophecies previously made and what we believe these prophecies are by looking at other scriptures that it mentions them is that it basically was through the leadership of the church and also through the apostle Paul God revealed to them Timothy's spiritual gifts I I don't really think it's that they laid hands on them and they imparted the gift I think it was a matter of recognizing the gift and what would those gifts have been well He came on Paul's missionary journey, which I believe also, too, could have been part of the prophecies that that this is the right thing for him to do. He has, I would say, the gift of evangelism. But we even see shy Timothy starting to teach in the churches and preach in the churches and preach the gospel. And for uh, some time, Paul would send Timothy to these other churches that they were at so that he could see how well they were doing and straighten out any problems they had or even false teaching. And so this is what I think those are. But with these, with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, with this called ministry, he tells them, fight the good fight. Literally, in the Greek, keep on. Don't stop. 
keep on fighting the good fight. And as I said before, the context is with these false teachers. And now we're going to learn about false teachers that had been troublesome for the church at Ephesus. He begins, though, in verse 19, saying how to do that. Or doing these things will help you fight the good fight. And the first one is keeping faith. So at this point now, verse 19 is going to tell us what to do to avoid being shipwrecked. Fight the good fight, but be careful that you and those who you teach don't become spiritually ruined, spiritually shipwrecked. And you need to focus, number one, on your faith. Your faith is to be in the faith, the faith of Christianity, the word of God, the revealed truth of the apostles that they have taught. You need to keep this faith, and actually it's keeping the faith. It's many things, um, when you look at them in the Greek, it's, it's continuous action. Don't stop. Whoever thought you're supposed to just keep the faith for a year, a, a decade, for your whole life. And then he's going to talk about a good conscience, having a good conscience, both in what you believe, what you teach, but also how you behave. These things help to avoid spiritual shipwreck. So this is faith that avoids shipwreck. All right, what do we mean or what does Paul mean by keeping faith? So as I said, this is to be done continuously, but if you look at the faith, it doesn't have the, an article in it. If it had an article in it, it would be the faith, which we particularly always think of Christianity. You know, uh, we are here and we are following the faith. What faith? Well, the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, what was in his word. But this is the idea. We need to keep our eye on the faith, but we need to keep our faith in the faith. Keeping on with our faith. It's subjective. When a person lets go of this faith, or this faith dwindles, or this faith becomes weak, it's like motoring a ship without a rudder. It is prone to become shipwrecked, and that's what is not to happen. Now, let me just begin with an application, because some of these things that we're going to go through uh, are not so applicable, but let me say, well then, how would you strengthen your faith? How do you keep in the faith? Well, let me be very honest with you. You keep your faith by staying in the word. And you say, well, you always say that. Yes, I do, because it's absolutely true. This is what gives you the strength. You know, when trials come in your life, if you know the word, the depths of the word, that's what keeps you keeping the faith. If you go for the warm fuzzies at church, if that's what a church is about, those are the first things to go when you go through a trial and a difficulty. It's the grounding in the word. This morning when I was talking with Lou and... Lou was in such pain that he had tears in his eyes. We prayed together. I couldn't help but think of the scriptures. 
and not necessarily one scripture in particular. I just kept thinking of all the times God answered prayer, brought his people through, and that's what we prayed about. And I personally don't know a time when God failed. And that's the encouragement. And that's the idea. When you know the word, you understand God. And understanding God is what keeps you going and keeps your faith in God. Now, one of the things that I see here is Romans chapter 10. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So when you're in the word, it bolsters your faith. That's why when you read the book of Revelation, the book of Revelation says you receive a blessing. Why? Because now that you've read it again and afresh, you, you see it freshly. It's, it's on your mind. You, you, you see that the events in the world, and it could be the events, are being moved like chess pieces by a sovereign God. Could be, might not be. They've thought this many, many times down through history. Doesn't matter. We're not predict predicting the time, but we are saying that there's a blessing in reading the scriptures and knowing these things will happen. And then it produces an urgency in your soul. So you see what the word of God has done? It, it gives you the reality of it. It bolsters your faith, and it also motivates you to serve. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is whether you are doing this in devotions, and you need to stay in devotions. You need to have a regular devotional time in the word. And I don't even care if it's five minutes. I mean, I care, but I, I do tell people, and I've told many young people, who say they're struggling with having devotions in the morning. Just give the Lord five minutes. That's all I ask. Of course, I also know, tongue-in-cheek, once you get in it for five minutes, you just have to go another five minutes. And then you have to go another five minutes. So why just ask for five minutes? And, and as you're in this, why? Because your faith is being strengthened by the Word of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who is sanctifying us. And I want to say this, and I... I don't know that I say this enough. How about attending church? How about attending a church that is sound biblically and theologically and teaches that sound biblical theology often and preaches the word often? That is what strengthens us. You know, when, when you preach the Bible, we, we always try to come to applications. In fact, you know, well, look here. Look at point four, observations and applications. That's what they educated me in Bible college to do. And if you're supposed to do it, you've got to take something home. Why are you in the Word? But let me tell you, it's not always this kind of application. Sometimes it is your understanding of doctrine and theology. If you don't have correct theology and doctrine, you might be doing crazy applications. So this, this is what you need to do to strengthen your faith. And, 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 and pastors, and you need to be faithful in preaching the word. You need to be faithful in preaching doctrine. I know that sometimes out there people go, oh, my word, theology is boring. I can't imagine how they would ever say that. I can't imagine how they would ever say that. You know what? You need to get into it a little bit more in detail. 
because it is not. This morning, uh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. And, and I just couldn't stop making references to what the Holy Spirit is doing now in your life. And by the way, did you know that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity? Which means he has all of the divine attributes as every other member of the Trinity. But did you know that he dwells in you? That's what it says. The moment you trust Jesus as your Savior, he permanently seals you until the day of Jesus Christ. So no matter what difficulty you have, you have your available to you divine power, not yours, his, as he is in you. And this is what we learn from doctrine. And I believe Timothy is told by Paul to give doctrine. Well, surely he did. He said, look, these false teachers are teaching about the law. He says, and they know nothing about the law. That was Paul's opinion of these teachers. They know nothing about the law. And it was causing people to have erroneous views. But Timothy knew grace and understood the law. The law, as we know it, is to show us that we're sinners and then to lead us to Christ. And Christ, by placing our faith in Christ alone, saves us, gives us forgiveness of sins. That is grace. And understood like that, that is appropriate. That's a sound doctrine to think of that way. But that's not always the case. Even today we find people that do that. But listen, don't take going to church lightly. Because going, taking church and going to church lightly means that you're not hearing the word taught all the time. Now, you may be having devotions, guaranteed, but I would venture to say, if you're not going to church, you're probably not having devotions either. Could be wrong, and if you need me to, I will apologize. But the truth of the matter is, is when a faith is waning, a faith is waning, and so is the word. There is a connection between the faith, your faith, and the word of God. Now, that is how we keep our faith. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, I will, I, I, I'm not saying that a person could lose their, their salvation. I'm not saying that at all. But it is possible for a believer to be spiritually shipwrecked, still a believer. It's also possible to have someone who is a false teacher and an unbeliever not be a true believer and become an apostate, total rejection. We'll talk about that in a moment. But before we do, let's look at the conscience. So you need to keep that faith and keep that faith strong. And the word really means holding fast. Don't you let go. Don't you let go. I know there's sometimes questions in Christianity, questions about doctrine, things that we don't fully understand. We understand them because they're in the Bible and we believe them and we hold them. But to intellectually understand the depths of God, that, that becomes a difficulty. And sometimes that becomes a difficulty for someone where they struggle. That's fine. I get it. I get you struggling. But don't throw in the towel because of it. In fact, I dare say that which you're struggling with, as you keep pursuing the word of God, keep studying, someday not only will you understand that, but it'll become a favorite well-loved doctrine, teaching in your life, and God will use you to teach others. But he also says, number two, in avoiding shipwreck, you have to have a good conscience. 
And we'll talk about a good conscience. What, what is a conscience? And I think we know, but I like to give definitions, as you know. I like to give definitions of good biblical men and what they have to say. The first one is from Freiburg, and a little technical. I'll have a little simpler one for folks like me. But it says, conscience is the faculty of moral consciousness or awareness by which moral judgments relating to right and wrong are made. So it, it, is, it is that understanding, that deep understanding. Now, I want, to make, I want to make a distinction here. We're talking about believers. And when I think of the conscience, I think of the Holy Spirit's ministry again. Because what I don't believe in is Jiminy Cricket theology. Let your conscience be the guide. And your conscience is somehow intertwined with what you like, with regardless what the Bible says. So we're not talking about Jiminy Cricket theology. We're talking about conscience, that, that moral judgment that the Holy Spirit works within based on the word of God, studying the word of God, based on you growing in the Lord, knowing what's right, knowing what's holy, knowing what's moral, and not consulting culture. Not consulting culture. Now, I would dare say that as a believer, I should love the world. I'm not talking about the chaos. I'm talking about the people in the world. God so loved the world, and I do. And even the people that are make up culture, I do love them, and I want them to have the truth, but I don't agree with them. I don't agree with them when they are indeed... Googling to see what everybody else is thinking. The mass majority has a belief. That's what we're going with. And anybody else who doesn't agree with it, well, you're automatically, from the get-go, you're automatically wrong and maybe ostracized. That's all right. That's all right. You want a, you want a good conscience? Don't, don't go with culture when culture goes awry. Always go with God and go with the word of God. John MacArthur writes, Conscience is a God-given device in every human mind that reacts to the person's behavior. It either accuses or excuses. And of course, we have to remember that a conscience can be seared. You can constantly reject what you know to be right. And at a time, you will sear your conscience and not even have a problem with that. So a good conscience is aided by the Holy Spirit as the believer reads and obeys scripture. But be careful because there can be a searing. Even in this epistle, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own consciences as with a branding iron. Well, quickly... Let me just talk a little bit about how do you gain a clear conscience? Well, the first step to gaining a clear conscience is, number one, coming to Christ for salvation, obtaining Christ's forgiveness. There isn't a sin out there that he hasn't died for. There isn't a sin that he will not forgive you for if you come to him. But you must come to him. You must believe on him. You have to have faith, start with faith, keep the faith, okay? You've got to have that. And we see in scripture many passages. It talks about that the Old Testament 
You know why the Old Testament sacrifices didn't work? Two reasons. Number one, God never intended them to work, and he intended them to be a picture of Christ's perfect sacrifice. But number two is because if it wasn't the true sacrifice, it could never minister to your conscience. And they were often giving gifts and sacrifices and offering them that could never make the worshiper perfect in conscience. The reason why they had to keep doing them, because it says otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleaned, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. You, you're forgiven. Now, you don't forget your sins. You know them. And I, I suppose there's even a place for grief over past sins, but not a grief that completely takes you out of living for the Lord. Just you know it. Maybe something to pass on to someone else. But it, you have forgiveness of your sins. That's where it starts. Secondly, what do you do after that as a believer? Well, then you confess your sins. Number one, to God. Number two, to the person or persons to whom you've offended. That's how you maintain a good conscience. We, we see David in Psalm 51, and we went over Psalm 51 when we did our series on David, a man after God's own heart. I love that series. He, how could he have sinned like he did and still be called a man after God's own heart? That sounds hypocritical. Well, the reason is, is because when he repented, he repented. And this is what he said, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, meaning himself. For a believer, when we sin, we don't lose our salvation, but it could interrupt our fellowship with him because of guilty conscience. We're not going to him. We're not having devotions with him. We're not praying to him. We're not even going to church. So it can affect it. So how do we solve that? Very simple. 1 John 1, 9. You know it. Listen to this. Okay, so you're already saved. You've already come to Christ. You have your faith in Christ. You've been forgiven of your sins, but now you sin again. And we do quite often. That's what R.C. Sproul said. We do quite often. And it says here, but if we confess our sins, it means say the same thing. If we, if we agree, yes, Lord, you're right, I, I sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, which I would also think that that has to do with our conscience. Not that we don't ever know that we sinned, but we know that our sin will never be brought up against us in judgment. And he has forgiven us now in this life that our fellowship is restored. And then, of course, we think about obedience. That's the other part. If, if you're a believer and you confess to God when you sin, that's good. But you need to obey. It's not a matter of I can live any way I want except have my personal confession time daily. Now, that's not it. That's not what it's about. It is obedience that we are to have. We are to have that obedience as well. And that's what keeps us from having a guilty conscience. And so if we're about to do something and we sense our conscience through the Holy Spirit saying, 
You ought not to do that. That's sin. Don't go forward with it. Because it's not as if, I won't have any problem. I'm a Christian. If you are a Christian, you will have a problem with it. I remember before I was a Christian, I was a good sinner. I could sin with the best of them and never bother me. I'm not a good sinner anymore. Oh, I still sin. I just, I just, it just makes me guilty. And by the way, let me, let me throw in, what about if you offend someone else too? So it's not just offending God. What if you offend someone else? Well, the scripture says that we go and ask them for forgiveness as well. Jesus said, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now these things that I've told you are probably known by you already, but look at them in light of the context. These two things, keeping faith and a good conscience will help you avoid having a shipwrecked faith and life. And by the way, what does it mean to have a shipwrecked faith or spiritually shipwrecked? Now we see this in the Bible, the word shipwreck. It is literal. That's the passages we read about Paul, three times shipwrecked. But spiritually or metaphorically, what does it mean? It would be someone who embraces unbiblical ideas and or sin that brings about spiritual ruin and hear me or rejection of Christianity so I do see this term and others have said it uh, John MacArthur has said it I do see it that spiritual shipwreck could be a reference to believers as well as unbelievers now there is a difference though if you're a believer and your faith is being shipwrecked, you could be taken out with the Lord not using you for him and struggling. If you are an unbeliever or in this case a false teacher, what could happen is over a period of time because you don't believe it, you just reject it. In, in fact, we, we, we saw that some time ago. We had a, a brother who, all intents and purposes, was a great brother. He knew the word. But because he was listening to some of the atheists and what they were saying, Christopher Hitchens and, and others, listening, he, be, he began becoming convinced of this. And at some point, he basically rejected the faith. And I remember we were having a conversation with him, and we said, well, do, do, you, do you think, are you a believer? Do you think you're still saved? Are you kind of looking at this, you're rejecting the Lord and you're being an atheist but you're, you're hedging your bets because you received Christ at one time and you know what he said he said well the truth is that if I don't believe in the existence of God which I don't then I don't believe in heaven and I don't believe in salvation therefore I'm not saved in your definition of saved and I'm not a believer that came out of his own lips we didn't even have to address we didn't even have to say that about him that came out of his own lips. And so this is what happens with the shipwreck. This is a serious thing. Staying in the word, coming to church, hearing good doctrine, fellowshipping with other believers who, who know the word of God. This is all good. This is bolstering you up. Otherwise, there could be shipwreck. Now, for a believer, John MacArthur says, it's all too common for Christians to wreck 
their usefulness, virtue, sanctification, and I'll add testimony, by believing error, and I would include by sinning. For the unbeliever, he might be someone who professes to know Christ, is even among Christians, but because he doesn't believe it, inevitably he ends up rejecting it, and that's what is called an apostate. Apostate is someone who claimed to believe and then rejects the primary beliefs of Christianity. Now watch this, verse 20. You want an example? Let's, let's look at Hymenaeus and Alexander. Among these who have suffered shipwreck, rejected in regard to the faith, among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And I'm going to just stop there. So I want to talk about these two individuals uh, quickly. And then we'll look at the phrase, whom I have handed over to Satan. Because I know that's what we all want to get to and find out what in the world that means. But Hymenaeus, he's mentioned twice in the Bible. Once in 1 Timothy and once in 2 Timothy. And because the name is so rare, we, it's believed that he is the same person. Not too many Hymenaeuses around. Now, Alexander, on the other hand, there are a lot of Alexanders in the Bible. They're mentioned. One is the Alexander who was a participant in the riot at Ephesus from Acts 19. The other one was the coppersmith who gave Paul a really, really hard time through persecution. That's mentioned in 2 Timothy. But I don't believe this Alexander is either of these. This is a different Alexander who somehow or other is in cahoots with Hymenaeus. And they are false teachers. Now, I've got to ask this question. Go back to verse 3 with me, if you would. Here's how it all started. Here's how the book of Timothy starts in verse 3 as far as after he, I, after he greets Timothy. Verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, not to teach heterodoxy, which is the opposite of orthodoxy, which is sound doctrine. Other doctrines, other theology. Now the question is, is he finally getting around to naming some of those certain men or not? And, and as, as I was reading, the, the, it's kind of split. But I am leaning on, and maybe even to my own dismay, I don't particularly have, I don't particularly have wonderful feelings towards false teachers. Because false teachers will lure away people in church, will lure away believers. And so we have on many occasions spent time not only teaching the word, but also teaching some of the false teaching that's new. The truth of the matter is, is I can't keep up with it anymore. There's so many. But this is, this is why I don't have great feelings for false teachers. And so in many cases, I do believe false teachers are unbelievers or not these certain men. 
But let me just go through it, okay? So some, some men think that uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander are the certain men that, that's mentioned, and it could be. Um, others believe that they're different, um, that he mentions this one group, but now here's another group, and this group, these two men, they are different. They're, there's a difference in what they're teaching and where their status is, and so they're different. So I don't think they're the certain men. And we'll talk about in a moment whether we think they're saved or not. But first of all, why, why would Paul unusually not mention them right from the get-go if those were the guys he was supposed to go to? Second of all, what we find in 2 Timothy is Hymenaeus, his, his false teaching had to do with the resurrection. These guys, remember, they had a problem with the law. They were probably telling believers you had to believe and keep the law or be circumcised. So it, it, it doesn't seem like it's the same. Hymenaeus and Alexander, they're now an example of men who are shipwrecked in the faith. It seems to me that in verse 3, those certain men hadn't shipwrecked yet. And Timothy's responsibility was to instruct them, yea, even command them not to preach this, and hopefully they would come around. And finally, I believe Hymenaeus and Alexander were already put out of the church by Paul. And it doesn't appear that those certain men weren't. So I think Paul's just using Hymenaeus and Alexander as an example. Now, what about if they are saved or unsaved? And like I said, you know, I don't have a lot of great feelings for false teachers. I mean, I guess I, I would want them to come to Christ if they, don't, if they don't know Christ. I would want them to get into good teaching and, and, and understand these things and come around. In fact, I did hear a story the other day of a pastor that was involved in a seeker-friendly church movement. And lo and behold, though he was there several years, he got saved. He wasn't a believer while he was there. And it's not hard to figure out how that could happen. But when he got saved, he wasn't seeker-friendly anymore. And in fact, people weren't friendly to him because he wasn't seeker-friendly anymore. And so he went on and started another ministry, but he didn't agree with those things. You know, bring them in through the flesh and then try to minister to them spiritually. Well, we came here for the flesh. Where's more flesh? Why the spiritual? So anyway, we're asking the question of whether these men are saved or not. And there are those who say that they're not. And, and, um, I, I somewhat agree with that. I have no problem with that. But I, I, I did take a look at some things, and this is what a constable wrote. Constable has a free commentary out. It goes over every book of the Bible. It's really good, and he's very sound, good doctrinally, and you can just download it right off of the, the Internet. And, we, and I always find it very good and helpful. This is what he wrote and made me think. Hymenaeus and Alexander appear to have been genuine believers, in view of how Paul described them here and in other references. So that's very interesting. And, and one of the things is, is if, if they are now shipwrecked in their faith, wouldn't that suggest that at one time 
they had a faith in which to be shipwrecked with. So that's one of the, the ideas. He says he hands them over to Satan so that they would stop blaspheming, which is teaching falsely, going against God's truth and God's word. So, so Constable and quite a, quite a few others believe that these men could be saved, but they are far gone, and that's why Paul put them out of the church. These other guys aren't, don't, don't appear to be out of the church yet. Now, there, there are those who think that they are unsaved, and they think that what Paul is doing here, put them out of the church, put this discipline upon them so that they might realize they are sinners in need of a Savior and come to Christ through genuine repentance. And, and, and I, that's, that is possible. And, and so when I was reading Homer Kent, Homer Kent said, you know what? We're unsure. We're unsure. So maybe it was if they are believers that they would come back to the faith and they would come back to good teaching. If they're not believers, then they would come to repentance. So maybe that's the way that we should approach it. So we have these teachers, these false teachers. They are the examples. And we find out a little bit about what they're teaching but we also find out that they have been handed over to Satan. And before we look at that, I want to just quickly go through what they believe. If you would, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. This is kind of looking at some of their teaching and their characteristics, but it's also the consequences of false teaching. And so he's talking about he's talking about these false teachers and he says in verse 17 and their talk will spread like gangrene. Of course you know what gangrene is and and, and the, the, the terrible stench of it, the terrible cause of it, the difficulty in curing it and that's what false teaching does. That's what bothers me about false teaching. And what bothers me is sometimes ears to want to hear that false teaching. It's a different view. Hey, I know what theology says, but let's entertain this different view. Why? If you are already solid in your theology. Unless, of course, it is to be used as an apologetic. I get that. But, but you, 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 you sometimes see this idea of wanting to hear these other things and flirting with them. Be very careful. Be very careful. I, I think that's one of the ways of straying myself. But their teaching spreads like gangrene and it's infectious. And I don't know why sometimes new novel teaching is so appealing. As if to say, well, you know what? I mean, you got a 65-year-old preacher up there who's really been preaching the same doctrine for some 16 years, 17 years in this church. Don't you have anything new? <laughs> Not when new is wrong. Not when new is contrary to the old. Jude talks about hanging on to the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We aren't flirting with all the newest and the latest. 
We don't want to be a part of this gangrene. We want to be solid in the word, solid in doctrine so that we're able to stand. So it says it, it spreads like gangrene. It says men, oh, by the way, it says among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Now, it doesn't say Alexander. Uh, I don't know why, but Alexander's not mentioned there. Maybe this is his new protege, but it is Hymenaeus, and we would suspect there's not too many Hymenaeuses around. Verse 18, men who have gone astray from the truth. Well, there you have it. That's, that's what the problem is, going astray from the truth. Well, here's a, here's a new false teaching, and it's kind of on board and kind of not on board. No, it's going astray from the teaching. You know what? Someone asked our former pastor years ago, who are his mentors? Speaking of John Ward, do you have any mentors, John? And John looked around in his library, bigger than the one I have, and he said, these men are my mentors. These solid Bible teachers, these solid theologians, these are the men that I read. And, and that's the idea. You don't, you don't want to stray from the truth. Now, I get it. Uh, every now and then, we're hearing things that are going on, a new, a new religion or a new belief. And, and, and at times, we, we have to deal with it. Or at times, you're, you know, someone will come in and say, this is what this person believes at my place of employment. Do you, you have any suggestions for me? I get that. I get that. But like Shane mentioned some time ago, how, how do you know, how do, how do bank tellers know what counterfeit money is? Not by looking at counterfeit money, but by counting real money all the time. And then when they feel counterfeit money, see counterfeit money, something is not right. They may not know exactly what's not right, but something is not right. And that is the same thing with our study of the Bible and with doctrine so that we don't stray from the truth. And I think also, too, at this point, we're, we're noticing those who do. I think we're noticing those who do. And, and that has been the saddest thing in Christianity lately. Good men down through, through just recent times are falling in with culture and going away from biblical teaching. And then and you say, well, that's just culture. No, it's not. Eventually, it, it has to do with doctrine. You know, we see this destructionism movement where, where, they, where they have actually said that to believe that God sent his son to die is nothing but celestial child abuse. I, I can't even believe a believer would ever say that. Well, obviously he's not a believer because he doesn't believe that it's, it's how you are saved. This is the greatest thing that has ever happened, that, the, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Can I hear an amen from God's people? Amen. Absolutely. And, and this is what's happening. And yet, sometimes, I don't know how, but these teachings can have an ear, and then they can be brought into church, and then they could be suggested. Well, one of the best ways to prevent that is for me to just pour it on with the teaching and the teaching of sound doctrine and fighting for it too. Well, 
straying from the truth. And what is some of the truth that they strayed from? Here it is, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. What? Saying that the resurrection has already taken place. Now, uh, I, I shared with you last week, that's how I got saved. An unbeliever was telling me that there were some people that believed that the Lord had already come and gone. And for the first time in my life, I ever said, what? I might not make it? It may be too late? Well, the months following that, I began to read the Bible a little bit and until finally one day I heard on a radio broadcast, I believe it was back to the Bible, I believe it was Theodore Epp uh, sharing the gospel and I sat there and received Christ uh, from that radio broadcast. But the point that I'm trying to make is, is, is this is what he was teaching and you know what, that's become popular. I don't know how many Easter's now I've preached on these false beliefs of current day teachers who don't believe it in Christ's bodily resurrection or in our bodily resurrection. And putting these men back in their own background and time frame, I'm thinking they have been uh, influenced by Gnosticism, which believes that flesh is evil. That's why, that's, that's why there is no resurrection because we're not going to be resurrected physically. Oh, yes, we are. And it will be a perfect resurrection. We will not have sin. And our Lord Jesus Christ is our prototype. Then it says this. And they upset the faith of some. Sure they have. Sure they have. I remember being a young believer at times and hearing either someone from a cult or someone with a, a different idea and it bothering me and having to go talk to someone. I even remember Spending time on my knees. Lord, show me the truth. I had just been saved like about a month, and for some reason I was doing battle with a Jehovah Witness. And I'll be honest with you, you know, I didn't know all the arguments and heard some of the arguments, and so I found myself on my knees praying, Lord, show me the truth. And I praise God that he did. And so people are upset, and it means this, that they'll either upset their faith or confound them. And then hence you have, then you have those category of people that I was telling you about that are struggling in their faith at the moment. I get it. No problem. Hey, my people, we love you. You know, come. This is the place. This is the place for that. But also, it could draw them away from the teaching of correct doctrine. It could, teach, it could, it could draw them away. And of course, in some instances, if they are not true believers, they could end up just rejecting Christianity. And then it says this. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, that would probably be a verse that would argue that these men aren't saved. But the idea is, is that if you are a believer, you are to have correct doctrine and you are to have correct behavior. You know, I know we struggle. I, I get that. And, and I am empathetic. I struggle myself. But it's the idea that where does that struggle leave you? Do you gain victory? Do you maintain victory? Or do you throw in the towel and care less about victory? And so wickedness is also a description. And I'll tell you something. False teachers often include in their teaching <clears throat> their excuse their excuse to sin 
That's, that's what popular false teachers do today. Well, <clears throat> now that we have looked at that, now that we have looked at that, let's look at this idea about being handed over to Satan. What does that mean? Does that mean excommunication, like other places of the Bible talk about, church discipline? Or does it mean some special power that brings brings some kind of damage to them and their flesh, the destruction of the flesh? Well, in a nutshell, I believe this is a synonym for excommunication church discipline with an explanation. John MacArthur writes this, handing over to Satan is precisely what Paul called for in the Corinthian church and what he did to two of the false teachers at Ephesus, here, Hymenaeus and Alexander, and what by implication he invites Timothy and us to continue to do. This, all, this is for Timothy, the pastor. Fight the good fight, and at times you will have to use church discipline. If someone is unrepentant of blatant sin, or someone is teaching false teaching that they will not stop. He says, such people who are excommunicated are delivered to Satan. And so I think that's what it is. Let me explain it. There's several aspects. Number one, it's the removal from the church, church discipline. And there are a number of scriptures in the New Testament talk about that. We're not going to deal with all those today. We'll have another opportunity in Timothy to go over all them. But it's, a rem it's removal from the church. It is removal from the blessings and the protection of the church. I'll explain. It can be, it can be destruction of the flesh. There could be physical illness. But the good news is that the Bible also teaches that in the midst of ch church discipline, its purpose is restoration with the Lord and with the church. So let me go over those as we wind down on this sermon. It's removal from the church, it's excommunication. So when there is a sinning believer, your first step is not to say one strike and you're out. What happens at that point is what I call ministry. Ministry to minister to them, to talk to them, to pray for them, to pray with them, to try to bring them back into restoration. If that doesn't happen, then there's another step, not church discipline. In fact, let me read it. I'll invite you all to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 17. And by the way, this is a good biblical recipe to go through. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault before the whole church. No, in private. The brother goes to the other brother. He doesn't say it publicly. He doesn't go to the elders. The old elders don't announce it from the church. This is right now one-on-one -on -one in the very beginning. If your brother sins, and we don't know exactly what the sin is, a general sin, but a sin nonetheless, go and show him his fault in private. 
If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Praise the Lord. And that's what ought to happen. Let's read on. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So in other words, look, now it's gone a little bit beyond personal. This is serious, and I want you to know how serious this is. So another brother comes along, still yet not brought before the church, not to the elders, because trying to get this done. And hopefully this causes them to turn around. It's not just you. It's not just your crazy interpretation. Then verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And of course, I would think we're, we're talking about the elders here. Tell it to the church. And let me just stop there. So that's how this. And so now the church, the elders would start to deal with it. You see, uh, it's not three strikes and you're out. I mean, it, it could be a long process depending on the sin, depending on, on the situation. Um, but, but it's all for restoration. It's all wanting to help the brother sanctify them, restore them with the Lord, restore them with the other person and with the church. But it says, if after that, and I'm, I'm thinking there's, there's numerous times of talking with them, trying to get them back to the basics of Christianity, having, making sure that they're having devotions, making sure that they're coming to church, making sure that they're you know, growing in the Lord. It says, if he refuses to listen even to the church, now, now you have excommunication church discipline if he refuses to listen even to the church let him be to you as a gentile and a tax collector strong language but what it means is as we know from other scripture is he is excommunicated from the church as long as you are living in this blatant sin and you refuse to repent you are not able to come and, and we are not going to associate with you like, well, you don't come to church, but everything's fine, and we'll just get together later. This is how, this is church discipline. Now, it is harsh, but the purpose is for them to come back. But in the meantime, in the meantime, when they're put out of the church, they're put out away from the blessings and protection, even from Satan. There is blessings here, and there is certainly protection here. Let me, let me kind of read that to you. Let's talk about the removal from the blessings and protection of the church. We have a community of believers here, and an individual has been with that community, and they are privy to the blessings that go on. I mean, how about the fact that you hear answers to prayer here? Hallelujah! We hear answers to prayer, and, and that's got to encourage anybody. Um, and even though we'll all experience trials and persecution while we're coming to church, the church experiences joy, peace, encouragement, and support among its members. I mean, that's still that's still there. That's the peace that passes all understanding. I don't, I don't, you know. People say, well, I don't understand. Well, that's what the verse says. It passes all understanding. And, but there's still this joy. There's still this peace. There's encouragement. Oh, my word. Now, not winking the eye at sin, but there's encouraging. You know, all right, brother, 
you're going on for the Lord, and then you had you had a speed bump and you messed up. Okay, well, come on, well, well, let's you know I'll pray with you, keep you accountable, go forward. And it's the same thing with protection. Even though we are going through spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter six, the church experiences protection from the Lord through the church. One reason, John 17, 15, Jesus prayed to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I think one of the places that people are kept from the evil one is at the church. So you know what? You might be hearing me talk more about faithfully attending the church. This is how important it is. John MacArthur writes, those who are to be delivered to Satan must therefore have been in some way under the umbrella of protection provided by the church. If they're casting them out of the church and now they're under, you know, the realm of Satan for opposition from Satan, uh, even maybe oppression, then it must have meant that there was some sort of protection. And, and you know, I think it's more practical understanding than, than, than anything else, but... Even believers, I'm sorry, even unbelievers, and I believe this is true, even unbelievers receive a certain amount of protection from their association with the community of redeemed people. Even unbelievers can find joy in a church, the joy of the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that they've trusted Christ. I'm not saying it's the joy of the Lord, but it's a joyous atmosphere. It's a serious atmosphere. It ought to be. And there's protection here. And so the idea is, is that there is a, an idea of an umbrella of protection. Jesus prayed for his disciples, not just for those 12, but for those who would believe after them that God would keep them from the evil one. And I think this is one of the ways that he does it. Finally, the last aspect about handing over to Satan, it can be destruction of the flesh. It can be destruction of the flesh. I'm not sure if you recall, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, a heinous sin was being committed by a believer. That particular believer was having an affair with a, a relative and another member of the church. In fact, I'll have you turn there. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1, it is actually reported, verse 1, that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And now, how's the church supposed to respond? Well, I'll tell you how it's not supposed to respond. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 3. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, 
I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now watch this, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. He's a believer. He's not going to lose his salvation, but he is sinning. And he's excommunicated, and having excommunicated him, he is now to the realm of Satan, that Satan, much like with Job, has the permission to deal with Job. God gave him the permission. Now, uh, this, is, this is the same thing that's being applied to Hymenaeus and Alexander. And the destruction of the flesh could refer to physical illness, intense trials, difficult hardships, and even death. You know, it's something to, to think about every time we have communion. Because here was a group that he was talking to, living a life of sin, and yet they were gathering together like everything was okay. He writes, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Meaning, they die. Now, let me just say, this doesn't mean that every time you're sick, that it's, it's God's judgment, okay? I think it's probably pretty clear when this happens to an individual. But, and it doesn't necessarily happen in, in every case. And, and I don't think that Paul is saying, this is what I want to happen to you. He just says, I'm handing you over to Satan, so whatever's going to happen. This also is part of the way in which it's to get the attention of the believer and bring him back to restoration with the Lord and the church. This is a doctrine that is not often taught, but it is in our Constitution, and it is in the Bible, and it is something that does need to be done. Now, it needs to be done right and biblically, and, and we need to understand that the purpose of, of it is to restore the believer. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, this is, the, this is the advice we're given as far as the purpose is restoration. It says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Wow, that's put all together. That ought to be our goal. So yes, even though there's, even though there's excommunication, and, and, it, and I have been a part of that. I had to do that to a, a brother or two, and I, I, I love this brother. It was so great, but he just, he just, um, he just had this besetting sin, and he even admitted, and, and he had such a good attitude that he even understood why we were doing, why we were doing it. But praise the Lord, there came a time when he, when he repented, and he was restored. It was so great. You know what else? So this, this, this man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they eventually do put him out of the church, and the Corinthians, who just can't ever seem to get it right. You know, first they were joyous. Hey, we're the church of love. We love anybody. Oh, no, wait, that, that sounded like 
That sounded like a commercial I just heard recently from a church. We love everyone. Paul rebukes them, so they put him out. That's it. He's done. He's never coming back. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, you got to bring him back now. Now that he's repented, you got to bring him back. He writes, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority. Sufficient. He's repented. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Boy, we could put that in as a third element for shipwreck. When a church doesn't receive back a repentant brother. Well, as we take a look at all of this then and put this all together, the question would be, how is it that we do prevent spiritual shipwreck? Looking at everything here, how can a believer avoid being spiritually shipwrecked and ultimately being handed over to Satan? And by the way, I want to add one other thing. So I've been talking about the sinning brother, but what do you do with false teaching? And I, I, I think there's a, a principle that applies to them, but you have to be very, very careful. I mean, the problem is, is that they are very vocal and they are very influential. And so you have got to make sure that they aren't going to be bringing that back in. Now, there are some things that we would agree to disagree on like if, when the rapture is going to happen. But I just know this. I believe that the rapture happens before the tribulation. And if I'm wrong, I'm the only one that has time to apologize. <laughs> we can agree to disagree on some of those things. But, but, but false teaching that could, could keep people from the gates of heaven. It could be the wrong gospel. It could be something that would lead them to, to become obedient to the law, thinking that this is either how they get saved or this is how they are sanctified. And we don't, we don't believe that. Yeah, there's a moral intent to the law, but it's not as if, you know, unless you're doing the things that we're doing, you're just not spiritual at all. We see that in legalistic churches. So it's very serious and very dangerous. And, and there's, there's a lot of times when they don't. It's a lot of times when they don't. It seems as if those are the people who will argue regardless of the facts. Don't, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. That's what we see sometimes, a characteristic of false teachers. So, but it does also apply. Like this fella who was a pastor and he, didn't, he wasn't saved. And when he got saved, he didn't appreciate the things that were going on in the church. Tried to correct it, didn't correct. And so he... He went somewhere else. That's a brother that you would receive again. And Paul said this is happening to Hymenaeus and Alexander so that they stop blaspheming, meaning that they stop teaching erroneous teaching. Maybe even they could then come back into the church if there was repentance. But how can a believer avoid being spiritually shipwrecked? We've said it all by, number one, holding fast your faith, your faith in the faith and keeping a good conscience. Not only knowing Christ, but confessing your sins. And by staying in the word, you know, that, that, that's a two-pronged thing. Number one, it will strengthen your faith. 
And number two, it will in some cases heighten your conscience of morality. That's how you go from culture to true morality. You're in the word. I, I, I get what they're saying. I get what they're saying. But it's not right. It's not right biblically. Staying in the word and sound doctrine. So this, this sermon was a little bit about sound doctrine and I make no apologies. We've got to know that. Also, by recognizing false teaching. You only do that by knowing sound teaching. Recognizing false teaching and possibly being willing to talk to them or, you know, it may soon go through all the steps. By faithfully being obedient and holy. Now that I know what's right, I've got to live by what's right. I've got to do it faithfully, not just one time, but I've got to keep doing it. Yes, you need the Lord's help to do that. I, I know it. I, I cry out for the same. Lord, don't let me fall in this area. Don't let this happen. You know, you get to the point where you, you know certain circumstances where it could happen. And you pray beforehand, Lord, this is coming up again. Keep my mouth closed. Are you that powerful, God, to keep my mouth closed? You pray beforehand, you pray during, and you pray after. Faithfully being obedient and holy. That's your purpose. And ultimately, the sixth one is by living for the glory of God and not for ourselves. In other words, it's not about me. It's not about my preferences and particulars in the church and things like that. It's about what the Word says. It's about glorifying him, not glorifying me, not glorifying my group that has Googled each other and we all agree and we're the group. No. You're the group, but he's the God. And we need to live to glorify him. And I believe these steps will help prevent spiritual shipwreck for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you now, Lord, that we would understand these things, meditate on these things. Lord, be nurtured by these things, ministered by your word. Father, that we would not forget that the Holy Spirit lives in us and enables us. Father, not forget that we come to church and we're encouraged when we hear uh, you answer prayer. We see the victories in other people's lives. Oh God, do not let us individually or even corporately as a church, which I believe can also happen, be shipwrecked in our faith. We give you the glory and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.